Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is episode uh, number seven, World War II in the Pacific. Uh, returning this week, um, guests from last week, Nick Sarantakis and Jim Holmes, welcome. And new with us this week, our, our professor of uh, all things science technology, Michael Dennis. Michael, welcome. Thank you. All right, good deal. So I thought I'd uh, start us off this week talking about just kind of getting into the um, what's going on in um, in World War II in the Pacific. Um, what is what is why does Japan start this war? Why does Japan start a war of conquest? Conquest? To, why do they feel they they need to do it? Do this? And and Jim, we'll start with you. It is, a, it is a little bit surreal. I, I specialize more on the naval side, obviously, because I mean, I'm a naval type guy. I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to Nick, to Nick to probably fill in with the land campaign. But the it, it's a little bizarre because if, if you look at the strategic debates in the Imperial Japanese Navy during the interwar years, they seem, they seem to do two things. A, they understand that the most li likely result if they start a fight with the United States is a protracted war. That's the nature of the war. And yet they plan for the war that they could possibly win, which is a, which is a short, which is a short war. They call it, they call it the doctrine of uh, uh, quick, uh, quick, quick, Quick encounter, quick showdown. Basically, the idea that you can that you can defeat the United States Navy, the U.S. Pacific Fleet in, in an afternoon, and it becomes an ideology. I mean, it, it really becomes. It, there's there's several big themes in Imperial Japanese Navy thinking after the Battle of Tsushima Strait, all the way up all the way up to 1941 with the attack on Pearl Harbor. There's just a few things that come up over and over again. For example, the, the, the two uh, the, the two the, the two theorists, the two the two instructors at the Naval Staff College in the in the days of Teddy Roosevelt. I mean, uh, back uh, back after the the Russo Japanese War, uh, Akiyama Sanyuki and uh, Sato Tetsutaro did a study, and they they calculated that the Japanese Navy needed a seventy percent ratio. They needed to be seventy percent the size of the United States Navy in order to have any chance of winning a showdown in the Western Pacific. And yet they didn't get that ratio. It, they didn't get that ratio at the Naval Arms Accords. They got a 60% ratio and the Navy just went nuts, or, or at least the hardline factions within the Navy just went nuts. They also uh, they, they, they also latched onto the idea of the 8-8 fleet, eight uh, battleships, eight, uh, eight battle cruisers, as, as it turned out. And again, these things were just got etched on the Navy's culture. It was and it was really hard for them to break out of. But again, it's it's really weird to see you understand the nature of the war and yet plan for a war that's probably not going to happen. You, you see, you see uh, Yamamoto, but there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of other reasonable people in there. They understand this, and nonetheless, they uh, they go along. Interesting. Thank you, Jim. Nick, we'll we'll go to you for uh, for your thoughts. Well, Japan is at war with itself. Uh, there are a lot of factions within Japan. And they have different visions for Japan's future. And some of them are fairly easy for us to understand, the army versus the navy. There are other factions, Satsuma versus Choshu, which were the uh, two daimyo or regions uh, that had overthrown the shogun. 
they're continentalist versus uh, navalist or people who believe that the future was in Asia versus those who believe that future was on the water in, in the Pacific. People who believe the Japan should be aligned with or allied with uh, the United Kingdom, those who believed it needed to be aligned with a European land power, primarily Germany. Uh, so there's a lot of conflicting ideas within Japan about what Japan's future should be. Ultimately, what happens is uh, the group that favors pursuing an advance into Asia wins. People who believe that Japan should have a colonial empire. And remember, Japan industrializes late. It uh, really enters the 19th century almost at the end. Um, there's a lot of turmoil within Japan after the shogun is overthrown in 1868, and you start seeing all efforts to industrialize. And in some ways, Japan moves from um, you know the 14th century to uh, the 19th century in about 20 years, which is really impressive. One of the things they feel they have to do, because this is what other Europe, other world powers do, is develop a colonial empire. And in this sense, they're building late. Uh, the British and French have seized a lot of good territory, and they're 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 trying to seize territory for themselves. And the, the idea is you have to have secure markets for uh, your finished goods. You also have to have places to draw raw material from. There's an idea that you can't do this through international trade and commerce because you can't control that particularly when it becomes important, like national security issues, oil, steel, iron ore. Um, iron ore, not, not steel, because you make steel from iron ore. Uh, so there's this feeling that you have to build a colonial empire. And, okay, let's do that. Well, they're doing this, and essentially that's they're essentially pursuing the same foreign policy that they had been pursuing in 1905. They're pursuing that in 1930, they're 1935, et cetera. And eventually they're bouncing heads against uh, the United States and the United Kingdom. They're trying to use the fact that a lot of European colonial powers are involved in an existential fight in Europe itself. They're, you know, some cases fighting for their very existence. I mean, uh, the United Kingdom has enemies on the other side of the English Channel who want to do them a lot of damage. So they try to take advantage of this and seize European colonies, and this bounces right up into the interests of both the United States and the United Kingdom. And ultimately, Japan is forced to basically make a choice. Do you continue to pursue this war in China to conquer China, or do you basically back up? And the answer is, well, we're not going to back up. We've invested too much time and effort into seizing China. And that's like, well, hey, you're going to get a war with the United States and the United Kingdom. And it's like, well... Okay. And the attitude seems to be, uh, let's attack them. This is so crazy, it might work. And um, it obviously doesn't. But there's a fairly good realization that they're, they're embarking on a cause in which the odds are really against them. With that said, here's one thing to keep in mind. They've made a habit of beating bigger opponents. They beat China in the 1890s. Uh, they beat Russia in 1904, 1905. Now they're taking on the United States. So they've done this before. They've got their small power beats big power playbook. And there are some significant differences, particularly the quality of their opponent. But anyway, there are others. But that's kind of a short version. Interesting. Michael, we'll go to you if you're thoughtful. Yeah, I would just point out, both Germany and Japan are what economists call late developers. And this late development, uh, think of it like this. The world is already full of stuff. How do you get your stuff if everybody else already has it they want colonies they want uh, this uh model now by the way 
but there is a profound difference. German industry is actually quite sophisticated, particularly in the early 20th century, before World War II. Japanese industry is not, even though they do industrialize. Uh, I'm always reminded of the fact that when the Germans go to visit the Japanese factories, they are stunned that they do not understand mass production at all. In other words, except for the Zero factory, where the man who ran it was a had worked for Henry Ford in Detroit and understood what an assembly line was. Everybody, everything else in Japan is made artisanally. That is, it is literally manufactured, made by hand. Uh, and that is a real defect if you're going to go uh, up against industrial economies. And by the way, this gets at something that is important for this case, which is the axis as an alliance is really not much of an alliance, let's be blunt. Um, and that, uh, for example, Germany does not transfer production technology to Japan. They do send two submarines to Japan at the end of the war. That's how we get Nikon, because um, only one gets through, and that's one with the Zeiss optical work lenses. But that's it. I mean, think about it. Uh, in terms of how the Grand Alliance works as opposed to the Axis powers, there are profound differences and this inability to share industrial information in large part, by the way, due to Nazi racism. I mean, remember, they didn't think of the Japanese as humans, really. They were just, you know, a useful appendage. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Thank you. Interesting stuff. So I guess it brings us to a, a follow-up question in terms of, we talk a lot about theory of victory for the course. So, you know, it seems to suggest that the Japanese theory of victory was, hey, we did it we did it twice before, we did it against uh, the Chinese, we did it against the Russians, maybe we can do it against the United States. And it seems like to bring in some of our naval theorists, you know, um, and Jim, we'll start with you again, would you say they, they, they read Mahan, but they don't understand Mahan, they want to fight the big, the big battle and take out the fleet, and then they think they've got, they buy themselves time to, to win? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess again, I guess that's the theory of victory, but I don't think they actually believed it really. I mean, it's, it's so which which again makes it just kind of a surreal uh, case and, it, and commends it to our attention and those are that of our students as well. But yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, if you look at what Mahan, I mean, think of it, think back to the, think back to the opening section of that we, that we do in the course so that that's our first ninety pages or thereabouts out of the influence of sea power upon history. I mean, Jay, I mean, obviously, Mahan's right. I mean, what's his gold standard? What does he want the United States to become? That's his agenda for his writings. He wants us to be like Great Britain during Great Britain's imperial and naval heyday. Yeah, so so you're a global trading power. You're a global sea sea going power. You have colonies, or at least you have uh, harbor access across across the globe and so forth. That's not really that's that, that doesn't really describe Japan. There are some there are some people in Japan that would like that that would like to have that, but that's very much a minority a minority view. They are very much all about to all about naval defense in East Asia. So right there, so right there, that's kind of a that's kind of a red flag uh, as far as as far as Mahan goes. Another another aspect, to sort of a grand strategic aspect. I mean, Mahan, Mahan with his six determinants, he's he's basically saying what what nations around the world have the right stuff to go to sea and become a Great Britain or a United States if, if the United States did what he wanted. Japan just simply didn't have the natural resource base. It didn't have the population, as Michael mentioned. It didn't have the industrial base. It just it just was not not a good fit. 
and lastly, it, it's, especially as you start closing in on uh, in the, into the 1930s and on, onto Port Pearl Harbor, they see they, they seem to disregard the Mahanian uh, the, the Mahanian uh, standard about command of the sea that you need to be you need to have sufficient numbers and sufficient capability to go to sea with a reasonable chance of success against the against the strongest force you're like, likely to face. As it, as it became obvious that the Imperial Japanese Navy was not going to outnumber the United States Navy, especially especially when the U.S. Uh, naval buildup gets underway starting in 1934, they start they start uh, resorting to all sorts of rationalizations. Uh, you know that uh, quality beats uh, quantity and so forth, and that uh, that sort of a it's sort of really intensive drills, ma- maneuvers, and exercises can can it help us overcome uh, overcome our inferiority in numbers. Ultimately, ultimately, numbers are going to tell, and that's something that Mahan would would, uh, would certainly have told them. Clausewitz, obviously, if he had been able to wear it way in, he, he would he would obviously uh, uh, extol the virtues of mass. It was again; they were just trying to they were just trying to trying to shoehorn the coming war into their pre existing pre existing uh, ideas about what should happen, not what's going to happen. So, yeah, fault in that assessment. Okay, Nick, any uh, any thoughts on this one? Yeah, um, the Japanese have a point to a degree. This is not, these are not incompetent individuals and the Imperial Japanese Navy is quite good. Uh, The problem is, is ultimately they're up against a much better opponent. Uh, The United States Navy, when the war ends, the United States Marine Corps, United States Army is much better than it was in 1939 or even 1941. Uh, They don't take into account that, you know, when you throw a punch at someone, they're not just going to sit there and let you punch them in the nose. They might dodge or et cetera. So uh, the Japanese, you know, they, if everything had broken right for them, they might have been able to win this war uh, if it had been a six month, eight, you know, 12 month war. The problem is, is that um, this Japan is at that point in time dominated by the army in particular, uh, less so the Navy, but still the two military services are dominating. Uh, there isn't a lot of what we would call now jointness or interagency operability. There's no plan on, okay, how do we turn this war off? Um, Yamamoto, who had studied in the United States, was kind of aware that, you know, the odds were really against him, but his att- approach, he, liked, he loved to gamble and his general attitude was put it all in black, you know, let's be, you know, kind of bold. And sometimes that can make up for it. Uh, you know, at, at some point, if, you know, if they had figured out a way to turn it off, uh, I've been reading the new biography of Nimitz and yeah, for, you know, in 1942, the United States Navy was really incapacitated in ways that we don't completely fully appreciate given the fact that we have ultimately win this overwhelming victory. But you have to win it quickly. And even then, I think this is like something like the Punic Wars, where, you know, you're going to fight a series of wars or, you know, France and the United Kingdom going at it all throughout the 18th century. Boom, 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 until it ends at Waterloo. So, you know, they might have won it, but then, you know, okay, maybe there's another war in the in the 1960s and so on. Um, but what really strikes me is they're trying to use uh, – Technical proficiency is a substitute for strategic thinking, mm. and the Germans do the same thing in World War exactly. uh, World War One and probably World War Two. Yes. Michael, we'll, we'll go to you. No, I would just say that Nick's absolutely right. I mean, uh, that's and there are two points to make here. One is yes, in 1942. I mean, the first six months of 1942, uh, when you read people's correspondence and you in, in the archives, there are many Americans 
including those doing research and development for new weapons who are afraid the United States will lose, okay? And uh, when those first images of American dead start to show up, by the way, from the Solomons, uh, people go, you know, those are on the front page of the Philadelphia Inquirer, the New York Times, the, the, the Washington Star, long deceased now. Um, and, you know, FDR is explicit about why he wants those images out there, because he wants Americans to see the costs of war and also to understand this is what we're getting into, ladies and gentlemen. Um, at the same time, I mean, to invoke another one of our theorists, uh, we are, you know, forgive me, uh, Jim and my other saltwater colleagues, we're not a Mahanian nation. We're a Corbettian nation. Um, we play, we use Mahan as a decoy to get other guys to invest heavily and do it. And then, you know, he's our secret weapon. Then we don't do anything he says. Um, but we, you know, the whole point of the, one could argue the Solomon Islands campaign does two things. And I owe these insights to our colleague, uh, Professor McCraney. Uh, you allow an overextended empire to fight us at the end of its logistics chain. So you can essentially make them feed the fishes. And B, you train your, you know, to get back to Nick's point about, yes, the American military is uh, quite well experienced by the end of the war, but let's face it, I forgot that, I think his name was Ellis, but the Marine Corps theorist, John will know this, who, Ellis. Yeah. Yeah, who came up with the idea for amphibious assaults. I mean, yes, he drank his way across the Westpac, but the most important thing about it was we didn't know how to do it. We had a theory. So you learn how to fight that way. And that's what the Marines learn how to do. Uh, and they become terribly proficient. I mean, one of the more interesting points I remember from my first or second year here, I guess it'd be 2015, was how little learning got passed from the Pacific assaults on those islands to the guys who had to go into Normandy. They didn't talk as much. So jointness was yet to be born. Let's leave it at that. And um, But I would just point out that we're more Corbettian. And by the way, we can have that 1942 fear of loss without having to embody it for a very simple reason. I got two big oceans. Japan's never going to come to the United States to occupy either L.A., as in that movie 1941, or... Um, Washington, D.C., right? I mean, that's it. Our two big moats matter. And by the way, they matter in the present as well, in different ways. So anyway, excuse me for talking too much. No, no, that's, you know, so what you said, <clears throat> Michael, kind of what jumps to my mind is, um, you know, Mahan's a U.S. naval officer, so we like to quote him more than Sir Julian Corbett, the Brit, but the way we fight that very first campaign in Guadalcanal is much more Corbettian than it is Mahanian. Um, it seems like, you know, my own service, the Marine Corps, always still to this day uh, makes fun of the U.S. Navy for, you know, abandoning them after the, uh, the assault on Guadalcanal. But if you actually read the history, you know, what happened at Sable Island, if the Navy hadn't left, there wouldn't have been any Navy to come back because the Japanese get the better of us in those first initial actions, technically. Um, so yeah, uh, uh, I think uh, I think the, the the Corbettian approach served as well as opposed to the Mahanian approach in these in these first initial actions. Um, but I want to I want to segue to the point about resources, turning the map around. Um, 
so we talked about how the Japanese don't have the industrial capacity to um, to go about this. We do have the industrial capacity, and we make a number of interesting choices in this theater in terms of how we divide resources, where we send ships, where we send um, infantry and marine divisions. We're doing this between global theaters, and we also make the decision to do it in between this theater as well. So uh, I wanted to pull the thread on that, on those, on those strategic choices that affect industrial capacity, economics, and, and, and resources. Um, Nick, since you just talked about this today, why don't we start with you on this one? Yeah, I mean, ultimately you have two fronts and you have to decide which one is more important. And at least on paper, the decision is made that the war in Europe is more important and Germany is the bigger threat for a variety of reasons. Europe's been the center of world power for 450 years. There are a lot of reasons for that. You certainly don't want the Nazis in control of something that powerful. At the same time, uh, you have to do something about the Japanese. and. You know, the idea is, well, we'll just kind of, it'll be a holding action. Well, okay, but if you simply don't do anything there for three or four years, one, there's a real question whether or not you can sustain that kind of approach uh, domestically. You know, the politics of the situation is Japan, not Germany, attacked Pearl Harbor. So there's a lot of anger, legitimate anger aimed at Imperial Japan. Uh, but the second thing is if you give them a two or three year pass while you focus on defeating Germany, they get that much more ready. And Japan is an important prize. Uh, I talked on stage about there being five centers of world power in the 1940s. Well, Japan is one of those centers of power. And when the war is over, we control four out of the five centers of power or four of the five centers of power are aligned with us. We certainly don't want uh, the Russians, the Soviets getting involved in Japan. So controlling Japan is an important thing. You can take 30 divisions, which is what we do and send them to the Pacific. Okay, but when you're sending that many guys there, there is an opportunity cost. And one of the things is, is, you know, if you have all those landing craft, you know, the divisions themselves might not be as, as important, but the landing craft, you can do an invasion of Sicily and Italy and still invade France in 1943. So, you know, by pushing it off and pushing it off, um, you're giving, more and more of Eastern Europe to the Soviet Union. Now, relatively speaking, you know, Japan is more valuable real estate than the real estate that the Soviets take. But there is an opportunity cost. And there are limits to what the United States can do. So, and the United States starts really bouncing up against that in 1945, because the distances across the Pacific are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And there are very few port facilities that can sustain an invasion of Japan that are on the west side of the Pacific. And you start seeing, you're starting to hit limits of manpower, uh, how many people you can draft and all this sort of stuff. You're starting to run into those problems in 1945. So there are limits even to American power. In many ways, the United States is fortunate that the war ends when it does. Interesting. Jim, we'll go to you. Yeah, there's sort of two points. Oh, before, let me backtrack just really. I was, I was going to say something in, re, in response to what Michael said. I think I think a way I think a way of looking at uh, at your proper strategy. He was talking about Corbett versus Mahan. I think a bumper sticker for that is if you're the weaker power, go Corbett at the start and then go Mahanian at the end. Corbett did want to win. I mean, as he, he's he, in fact, he says uh, he has Mahan's uh, right uh, nine times out of ten for this for the stronger fleet. So. 
this idea of active defense is one that pops up over and over again from from a variety of sources. Admiral King says almost the same thing Corbett did, and I'm pretty sure he didn't uh, he, did, he didn't st study uh, the theorists in any detail. Yes, he studied at the War College and so forth, but uh, but yeah, I mean, if if your main if your main fleet is out of action, you have to do what you you have to make do with what you've got. So you do carry arrays in the Marianas and so forth until so, until that until that fleet starts arriving, that new shiny fleet starts arriving from shipyards back home. Which brings me to your main. Which brings me to your main to your main question. That the uh, and, and this is something that should really resonate with us today. Remember that the United States. I mean, I mean our naval buildup is in full swing before December seventh. Well, well before December seventh. It starts in 1934. There's an additional naval, sort of a modest uh, uh, naval buildup act in, in 1938, and then there's two in 1940. Uh, so in June, and then again in July. Essentially, what Congress does is authorizes the construction of a second. U.S. Navy that's that's bigger, that's better than than the old one. For the first time, we were able to break out of our two ocean dilemma, uh, whereby you have to you have to balance between between the the Atlantic and the Pacific. All of a sudden, you can have a self-contained U.S. Navy in each ocean. Yes, you can swing uh, assets back and forth uh, depending on what's going on using the canal or whatever, but you don't necessarily need to. So that's a that's an important point. Think about I mean think about this think about this year. I've been wondering whether the I've been wondering whether the Russian war in Ukraine would apply the same sort of stimulus that the fall of France in, in 1940 uh, applied to Congress. That was a major stimulus for uh, Congress to pass the Two Ocean Navy Act. Well, are we going to see that sort of thing when uh, Congress is debating defense budgets in the in the coming months? And that's a, that's that's an interesting historical parallel to watch. I sort of hope so. We we certainly need that industrial capacity back that they had back then. But that's uh, I guess that's uh, something to for us to uh, to ponder as uh, as events unfold. Mm, interesting. So a follow up uh, question on that one, then, Jim. And you know, you you give a lecture on Admiral Wiley, who talks about combining uh, sequential and cumulative campaigns. But um, and and you know, you said that we have to do something in the in the Pacific. Is is the, even the very concept of sequential and cumulative campaigns completely predicated upon having the resources to do so? Yeah, well, I mean, everything's obviously at bottom going to be resource dependent. I guess I guess another bumper sticker, if you're the weaker power, if, if you want to put it in Wiley's terms, I would say, and by the way, I would apply this also to other forms of warfare, such as counterinsurgent warfare or insurgent warfare, for that matter. A good a good formula, sort of a wily formula for thinking about that would be start cumulative because you could do that while you're the weaker power and you get your act together and go sequential and apply that uh, sequential decisive blow when that uh, when that Mahanian or that Clausewitzian victory at the end. That's another that's another way for looking at active defense. But yeah, I mean, so so absolutely you can and, and this is a very Maoist idea as well. Our students have read uh, Mao at the beginning of the course. That's what the, that's basically what Mao is saying. When you're getting organized, you're rallying political support, you're, you're mustering manpower and so forth, you can still be harrying the foe by doing small-scale small, small scale tactical actions all over the place to start cutting your adversary down to size, even as you make yourself strong. That's phase one. And then ultimately, if you do things right, you will build up to a strategic equilibrium. That's a, so, that's, so, that's, so that would be a, the Maoist phase two, strategic equilibrium. But ultimately, the goal is a Clausewitzian counteroffensive that lets you win. And I think that's a uh, Wiley doesn't uh, Wiley doesn't pay much attention. Well, I, actually, he does mention Mao, but Mao seemed to be sort of a new a new thing in the in the 1950s and 1960s when he was doing his writing. Of course, he really came into vogue in the 1960s during the Vietnam era. But uh, 
but yeah, so it, I think that's a great uh, point. In fact, uh, Wiley talks when he when he talks about one of the major schools of, of thought among military people, he calls one of them the Mao school. But again, he sort of, he sort of does this, and he doesn't seem to have a good grasp on insurgent warfare. But that's clearly a cumulative form of insurgent or of of, uh, of warfare that ultimately transitions into sequential, mm-hmm. if you win. <laughs> Uh, Nick, any any thoughts on this one? Well, ultimately, you know, this is a conflict that the United States uh, wins. But um, as I was saying before, there are limits to uh, what you can do. And, you know, there are a lot more Americans today. But one of the big differences is there are a lot fewer young Americans. So, you know, there are two things to consider um, how much you're going to spend, uh, you know, how many casualties can you take, how much uh, resources can you can you lose? But there's also a time factor. Clausewitz talks about that. And generally, you know, I think if you're going to ratchet up the amount of uh, stuff that you're going to lose, um, then you have to lower the time. And if you need to fight a war that's going to take a long time, you need to make sure that it's costing you less in material and uh, people. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, Michael, I would just point you know. Why are we able to build this big navy? Uh, why are we able to do all this? In, you know, from the especially from the two ocean navies act. We're, I mean, I hate to say this, but it's because the new de- new deal failed, and we had a massive amount of indu- unused industrial capacity which we could mobilize and essentially do military Keynesian through Keynesianism through to get us full employment. I mean, we were talking about this before we went. Uh, on this the video, but uh, look, uh, today uh, DOD says they want more factories to build just basic munitions, high Mars, 155 shells, just, it, you know, VLSs even, even though I don't, we don't know how to reload them at sea, but no matter. Um, we need more stuff. Okay, my economy right now is pretty close to full employment. Nick raised a really interesting and important point, which we don't discuss. What are the strategic effects of an aging population? Um, uh, Especially one that has become now, as we've seen uh, overnight even, uh, reluctant to accept immigration and accept immigrants. Um, This is a real problem for us. Um, immigration was our secret, the secret sauce of our economy, to be quite honest, uh, that is providing labor. Anybody who has elderly parents knows that the people who work in nursing homes are more often than not uh, immigrants, uh, including the physicians. And I would just keep, you know, the most important lesson we need to understand is, yes, we all watch World War II movies. I enjoy them as much as the next person. But they're not the John Wayne ones. My mother's uncle Leon walked out of the Sands of Iwo Jima claiming it was just an absurdity. But um, he was a Marine. Uh, but he. But the point is simply this. We're not that nation anymore. We can't make stuff in the way we used to. We are trying to what I think of as reindustrialize. We have never seen anyone reindustrialize. And insofar as our course is about, particularly at the senior level, which is not the course we're talking about, about that the United States is in some way reminiscent of Great Britain, let us not forget. Paul Kennedy tells us quite explicitly in uh, the rise and fall of great powers that the financialization of the British economy doomed them. And 
you know, that's why we got, you know, everybody's, you know, lining up to see the, unfortunately, uh, the queen who passed away. I'm sure she was a nice lady. Okay, I'm not criticizing her. But uh, let's be honest, do we wish to be that? And how do we reverse that trend? Because I got to tell you, I don't know how we do it. The very fact that we cannot build ships quickly anymore. I mean, come on, we're building a Liberty ship every few you know weeks. And when we do it, what? And they do that stunt building. Come on. Uh, we can't do that anymore. Uh, we can't even repair ships quickly anymore. Um, and our maintenance problems are severe. So it is not to be a downer here, but it's just to recognize we were in a unique historical position. And by the way, we kept the gun, you know, the you know, foot on the pedal after the war for in terms of industrial production, in terms of capital formation and the like. But that's not us anymore. I mean, we want to attack China. I would prefer to sell them a bunch of collateralized debt obligations. Um, <laughs> and by the way, we may have inadvertently done that because of their real estate problems and their inability to uh, exchange, you know, since the yuan or the renminbi, depending upon what we wish to call it, is not, you know, they have capital controls. Maybe they will have that. But the aging population issue is one Nick raises, and it's one that we actually have in common with the Chinese. And it is a profound problem because mm -hmm. skilled labor is the greatest impediment to my industrial growth. I need more people who can make a high Mars. I need skilled labor. And by the way, that means not everybody has to go to college either because a lot of those are trades Anybody who watches this old house knows they're constantly begging young people to go into the trades. And unfortunately, I don't think young people watch this old house. Just old geezers like myself who envy Norm's and uh, Tommy's skills at assembling things. Well, that's good to hear because I got three kids and uh, thought of paying for college nowadays is, is pretty daunting. So I'm glad you said that, Michael. <laughs> Jim, we'll go to you for the follow up. Yeah, I just got I just got done uh, bearing the bearing the brunts of that's a uh, that's a uh, tuition load for four years. So yeah, and boy, boy, it feels mighty good. I have to say, <laughs> yeah, Michael Dennis always he always shines a ray of sunlight on our on our debates in the department. So yeah, I'd say I mean it's a great point. And I, I just actually just like for the for the students' benefit. I mean, think of and this and you're right. This is a very SLC uh, point, but I think that's entirely appropriate for a forum like this. I mean, think about the grand strategy. I mean, what are the sinews of American power or or Chinese power or any other any other nation which with me might want to partner or, or oppose potentially? We. Uh, I think it was back in 2010, we did a major conference and then an edited volume here at the Naval War College about the impact of dem dem demographics on great power strategic competition. And it was really fascinating. It was, uh, I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I in particular did the chapter on the, on the Peloponnesian War, which, which to me, which to me was really, it was really fascinating. It, it took me in, in, in directions I never would have envisioned. I mean, what, what do you think that, what, what do you think? And I think Mike uh, sort of hinted at this. It seems like declining manpower ought to, ought to make you uh, cautious and conservative and prudent in world affairs. And yet that didn't seem to be the case. That didn't seem to be the case with Athens and Sparta. Uh, I mean, Athens, uh, Athens, uh, it, it's, it suffers that massive demographic blow during the plague. And yet, what does it do after that? Goes nuts. Whereas, whereas Sparta seemed to, to more fit, fit the pattern simply because of its, uh, its, of its weird demographic pra uh, practices. Uh, it, it, it suffers an earthquake in the 460s and so forth. So 
don't don't necessarily assume you froze jim i think jim froze on us here um i'll wait oh, to get him back dangerous simply oh, because think about think about what clause of it says if you if you're if if today is as good as it gets for you as a contender in world politics then you might want to do something right now because things will be worse next year if the trend lines are, are going against you. If Xi Jinping, if Xi Jinping thinks that, I think that I think that uh, I think that makes him a dangerous player. Isn't that what got <clears throat> arguably Japan into this into this conflict we're talking about today? Though is that that oh we only have so much time we have to do it now? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. There's certainly an hour <laughs> aspect in both in 1904 and 19 and, and 1941. I mean, if you look at, in fact, uh, if you if students follow East Asia, you ought to, you ought to look up uh, Defense of Japan 2022, which uh, which the, the Ministry of Defense put out earlier this year. Every one every one of Japan's uh, strategic planning documents, security security documents, always they they always make explicit reference to Japan's uh, declining manpower, which is one reason they try to they try try to minimally man their ships. They try to substitute uh, robotics uh, for manpower, and so I mean all the things that Michael was uh, uh, alluding to a minute ago. So that's that, that's one power that you see actually, you know, just sort of sort of being candid about its uh, about its fortunes. Nick would probably have a better handle on, on the exact uh, on the exact figures, but uh, I, t I tell you what, with a 1.2 child, uh, I think it's about a 1.2 replacement rate in Japan. Japan's going to get a lot so, a lot smaller in the coming decades during our careers. So be interesting to see how they handle that. Hmm. In interesting points. I definitely want to come back to the contemporary points here in a little bit, but. Uh, but before we go there, uh, completely down that rabbit hole. Um, so all we said about resources and whatnot, letting it back to where the United States is in 1941-42, it has the capacity, the capability to, to, to resource all of these things. But is it good strategy to pick two different sequential drives across the Pacific? And you, know, you, you talked about the point before, Jim, how do you win, right? How does one win? Um, is that the best use of resources? Is that the best use of strategy in terms of actually winning the war against Japan? And does the, is this just indicative of, of the, the poor state of lack of jointness and, and service parochialism at the time? Uh, and why don't, we, why don't we start with you, uh, with Nick on this one? Well, that's a good question. And it's one that uh, historians have wrestled with for a great deal of time. Uh, the one volume history that was written in the early 80s by Ron Spector, Eagle Against the Sun, that anyone who's a World War, World War II history buff is going to know this. It's a pretty good uh, one volume history. He says, you know, bad idea. Um, if you read Clausewitz, you come to a different conclusion. Clausewitz, as we all know, wants you to concentrate. But he says on some occasions, uh, there are it's reasonable to create two different theaters. And he's saying, you know, when you have geographic features and he's talking you know, about like, he says distance or if you have mountains, okay. He's talking about Napoleon can't be the commander in chief in Spain and Russia. Okay, got it. You look at the distance involved in the Pacific, it's huge. And if you, soup, I, I love overlay maps and I have one in the lectures that I use for World War II where I overlay a map of the continental United States on MacArthur's command, and MacArthur's command is bigger. So, you know, one theater commander for continental United States, that's big. And then, you know, there's all Nimitz's command. So the distances involved really necessitate that you have separate commanders. The issue is how much resources do you send? And I, my personal opinion is 
They send too many resources because you get into inter-service feuds. Europe is the fight. You need to basically, you know, get victory there. Um, with that said, my argument can only go so far. Yeah, what does what's the cost of not fighting or not sending those resources to Europe? The answer is the Soviets get Eastern Germany and Poland, okay, and you know the other countries of Eastern Europe, okay. If you do D-Day in '43 and you have a holding action, you get Eastern Germany probably. I mean, you know, we're talking counterfactual, so you, you don't know 100%. Maybe you get to Warsaw. Maybe you get to the um, Soviet-Polish border. Okay, that you may not have a Cold War or you might have something that's a lot less. Um, but what's the opportunity cost? Well, Japan might be able to survive this war if you're not putting your resources there and you're giving them time. I mean, this is when it starts getting to kind of cloudy. But uh, those are the things you need to think about. And uh, as far as Nimitz and, you know, setting up a separate command for MacArthur, I don't think it's as bad as people think. I think it it makes sense. Um, there are other problems uh, with uh, the war in the Pacific, uh, it, but the rivalry between the two theaters, that needed needs to be managed. And given MacArthur's ego, he's never going to take secondary status. And it's very clear that his theater is secondary in the Pacific. And oh, by the way, the Pacific isn't entirely secondary, and that's just something he's not going to tolerate. So a lot of people like to attribute actions to MacArthur because of his ego. And so that's certainly there, but there is sound reasons for a lot of things that happen. Interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Michael. I would just point out something. We are talking almost as if the end of the war is known to the participants. The end of the war is not known. Okay. And because of that, um, so much is unknown. As a matter of fact, uh, think about it like this. The United States, uh, we used to teach our colleague Ma Tom Mankin's piece about radar at Guadalcanal. And one of his points was simply, the United States actually didn't know how to use it. Why? Because the radar school at MIT was just being set up. And the textbook was literally being written during Guadalcanal. And they were sending the chapters by plane out there to teach the guys excuse me, how to use the sets. And remember, this is when we couldn't, we were learning how to manufacture them. All the sets they had were profoundly experimental. Think of it as like a, an early Apple operating system, a beta test. And by the way, but this is hardware. And when it fails, you know, you have to have a double E degree to figure out how in God's name do I fix it? So, you know, the end is not known. So one way to think about the two paths, yes, the political problem of MacArthur is amazing. And we do ship him to Canberra, Australia, which is as far from Washington, D.C. as you can get, as far as I can tell. But uh, think about it. It is, our advantages are we are bringing new things online. Uh, we always emphasize the atomic bomb, but we should remember that that is utterly separate from every decision being made in the Pentagon. It is a different world because after all, no one imagines that it will play any useful role other than burn Japanese civilians. And recall, it, the problem is it's not ready until July 45, when the first test on July 16th. We are already burning Japanese cities to the ground with napalm. 
another Harvard invention, I might add. And uh, so just keep that in mind. The end is, Clausewitz has a great line. He says, you cannot judge the success of a strategy simply because it produced the victory. Because he says, you don't know that when you started, you were all, you know, the Trinity is in action here. That unwieldy amalgam of reason, passion, and chance, and my students will just hate me for saying that yet again. But it is that, that is the core insight. It's that you don't know the future. And we as historians and strategic practitioners, whatever we wish to call ourselves, have to recognize that we study finished conflicts. That's what makes our last case so interesting because it is not finished. It is in media res, like life itself. And so just if the students keep that in mind, it is the profound uncertainty of what we are embarking on in 42, 43. If anything, it just makes you realize something that Sally actually says in her handouts. The greatest generation is not the generation that fought the war. The greatest generation is the generation that planned how to do it and made the bets and investments. In other words, it's not... Uh, my parents' generation, it is my grandparents' generation. And that is a really profound point she makes. Uh, sorry, Mr. Brokaw. Um, so just keep that in mind because the generational patterning of political, social, technical life is actually like the problem we were discussing earlier of an aging population is really important. And unless you have experience, you may, it's not that you need it, but you, as Clausewitz would say, kudoyo, or however one says that, I have a guy who actually speaks French in my seminar. He keeps correcting me. Thank you, Omar. And, um, but just keep that in mind. For Clausewitz, that experience is central. Hmm. Excuse me for- No, good, 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 good stuff. Thank you, Mike. Uh, Nick, we'll go to you before we go to Jim on this one. Yeah, just a real follow, a quick follow-up. I think Mike makes a very good point. You don't know how the war ends. There's this tendency, particularly with World War II, to think it's pretty much all over, you know, in December of 41, when the United States declares war on Japan and then Germany. Um, I'm of the opinion that, you know, if you, this is kind of like the game Blackjack. Uh, there's, there's a sense you can go too far. You can go past the culminating point. The United States, for a variety of reasons, is able to bring the war to an end right about the right time when it needs to happen. Uh, I've had students who are supply officers, quartermaster officers that say, you can see the culminating point of victory and the culminating point of attack if you pay attention to your supply situation. If you're looking at the war in, against Japan, the invasion of Japan is going to be a very difficult undertaking. And one of the reasons for that is what I mentioned before, you're already at the far end of your supply lines, but Japan is a really large piece of real estate. You superimpose it on the United States and it stretches from uh, Georgia to Maine. So, you know, that, that's a pretty big piece of real estate there. Uh, think about trying to, to conquer that and all the logistics involved in that. And as far as what Mike said about generations, I'm not a big proponent of the generations, but he raised an interesting point. One of the big differences between the military services today and the military services then, particularly in the Navy, is you went to PME. You went to the War College to get flag rank. And a lot of people said it was, you know, 
particularly important. Nimitz has, says a lot of stuff about that. We really need people who think at the strategic level, who are asking the big questions. And there, there's a very sound argument to be made that, you know, a bigger Navy is better, but you have to be able to explain why you need more ships. And um, that is right now not what the Navy, the Navy seems to be moving in fits and starts towards that. Uh, but the attitude seems to be, if you're a good sailor, you need to be on a ship. And that's certainly true. But, you know, if you're going to be leading at the strategic level, you need to also be able to explain some strategic concepts to your civilian bosses and to the members of Congress who are going to be writing the checks. All that you had in the late 30s and that came, comes in to be very useful in, in the 1940s. Interesting stuff. Jim, we'll close out this question with you. Yeah, I, actually, what Nick was just saying is, uh, is is very important looking at today's Navy. I think I, I know that when I was in uniform, that we I was making fun a little bit of Imperial Japan for having mantras basically built into its strategic culture. Certainly when I was in uniform, the, the, the way to get ahead was sustained superior performance at sea. And if, from talking with so from talking with students since uh, since that time, I think I think that's uh, still that's still a very a very powerful uh, cultural impetus. So so again, if you if you you get what you reward in, in a military service or any big big organization, if they, if that's what you reward, you're actually got, uh, applying a disincentive to to do PME type stuff. So kind of so maybe perhaps it's uh, to our students and uh, and the younger generations to try to maybe not break that culture, but at least uh, at least amend it in a more healthy way. Uh, just uh, just sort of bridging back to your original question about the about the dual offensives they I, I don't think I don't have a lot to add to what to, to what to, to what my my uh, colleagues have said I would but I would put in a plug for when you're thinking about whether to subdivide resources between different places on the map they were they were talking about Atlantic Pacific obviously you posed the question in terms of of the two the two pronged offensive I would just uh, put a put a plug in for what I call Clausewitz's three R's when he talks about secondary theaters, which we're actually talking about uh, bouncing among three major theaters, I guess, in, in this case. So remember what he says, this is something you get use out of every single day in your career. It's in that discussion about the center of gravity. When, uh, when, should, when, should, you, uh, when, when should you undertake a secondary theater and, and, and divert resources into something secondary if it, if, it, if it offers exceptional reward, okay? So, so it's really, really important. Secondly, but, but he, also, he also wants us to keep in mind or basically keep your eye on the ball keep the major theater in mind if so if i have enough resources to do that he says decisive resources in the main theater if i have that if i am in good shape in the main theater then i can afford to, to divert that disposal force without bearing too much risk so again reward resources and risk uh, those are those are the three the three things really really to weigh. To me in the Pacific, I actually think if you're so well resourced as we are in the late stages of the war, the Imperial Japanese Navy was going to have a have a, a very hard time meeting either one of those prongs. So why not do it and then put the Imperial Japanese Navy on the horns of a, of a dilemma? You may you you, you uh, apply that dilemma. It's, so it sounds a lot it sounds a lot like General Sherman who was always talking about putting the Confederacy on the horns of a dilemma during his campaign in Georgia. But uh, so, yeah, I mean, why, why not do it? Keep them guessing, give them uh, basically impose them, on, impose on them the problem of where to put their, their uh, steadily declining resources. If you, can, if you can do that, maybe you can speed up the end, the end of the war and get a more satisfactory outcome. Michael, go ahead. I would just point out one thing. And all of Jim's comments are, as, as I uh, always am delighted, are terribly useful and a great thing for our students to remember. 
I'll have to remember the three R's. I had never thought of it that way. Thank you. Yeah. Um, look, again, there is a major element of chance in the end game, and it is in fact involved in the the core the connection between the European and the Pacific theaters. And that is, of course, uh, it is the problem of the 90 division gamble. Uh, Patterson freaks out. Uh, Anand knows the story even better than I do. I'm looking forward to reading a new book that's coming out in part about this. But um, remember, once the Battle of the Bulge takes place, our manpower reserve is gone. It, it's over. The, all the troops we were thinking we're going to have to send just for what Nick pointed out, the incredibly costly, dangerous. I'll be honest, when you read about Operation Downfall, you're, the, the, the skin on the back of your neck should freak out, uh, should get raised, if only because what we're proposing to do is just so, forgive me, un-American. The use of poison gas, the use of uh, an array of weapons. By the way, the nuke is not part of any of those plans. And uh, so just keep that in mind but that 90 division gamble was you know to go back to the culture and societies theme of the course that's because for one simple reason we don't wish to um forgive me we don't wish to use more minorities in our factories or women we don't wish to give them more responsibilities women would have to become white women would have to become managers in factories and we were just not willing to do that as a nation. Patterson, remember, goes to FDR and says, I wish to resign as secretary of the army and I wish to get a commission as an officer to go fight. And FDR looks at him and remember FDR is dying and says, are you out of your mind? You're an old man, you're, you're almost as old as I am and I'm sick and you want to go fight? And he says, I feel obligated to do so because we have made a mistake. And that is a, you know, a profound statement because the 90 division gamble did work, but Nick Racer, you know, compared it to blackjack. And I would just forgive me and say, that's not the kind of card game Carl plays, right? He plays games with a, what I call a trump card. Forgive me for that name and word, but you throw down a card and that's your either win or you lose, but that's it. And then, of course, there's the question of cheating, which uh, Carl, all of his card games involve the possibility of cheating. I don't know what cheating in war is. I thought the whole point about war was everything is fair game. But think about it. We have this 90 division gamble. And, you know, to go back to the two prongs, uh, forgive me, Nick, I know you have more. Um, but the Nimitz and, and MacArthur is once I get to Tinian, I can then use an, you know, a different kind of manpower, right? I need my air crews to pilot my B-29s because I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to have infantry now, right? I'm going to just have these guys who fly these planes. And that's how I'm going to take the war to the Japanese home islands. And that's how I'm going to impose costs upon them. Yes, MacArthur wants to do his, you know, he wants to one-up Ike and have an even bigger amphibious assault. But guess what? Uh, you know, in one sense, LeMay is a genius. He realizes that, you know, the, once they encounter the, you know, the jet stream, this ain't going to happen the way it, they thought that it would. They're going to have to fly low and burn out the Japanese cities and take advantage of, you know, the Air Corps Tactical School's great insight. Theirs was based on, you know, 
they kept saying, oh, these paper cities will burn. Yes, they will, because they're made of wooden framed housing from earthquake for earthquake protection, not because they don't know how to build with bricks, for heaven's sake. And that's a really important point. Again, chance favored the United States, uh, and we should not uh, forget that. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that point, Michael, because I think it's, it provides us an excellent segue into, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of bridge with this question. We talk about the role of technology and it's under our Instruments of War course theme, right? We, um, it, and it rhymes with what we have going on today. We talk about the offset strategies, right? We're using technology as an offset for manpower. Um, so we, we developed the bomb and we use the bomb to end the war. Obviously there's some other stuff going on there. Students debate seminar, what really ended the war and whatnot, not to get into those rabbit holes, Please. but to shift it to the contemporary realm, you know, can, can technology become too much of a panacea for us today in, in terms of, you know, this, this, this uh, don't send a man where you can send a bullet debate, if, if you will, uh, is there a danger in that? Because Mao, we read Mao for the course, as Jim was mentioning, he says it's people over weapons. Of course, because how do you get the bullet there? Um, and even at the more basic level, the problem is that it's like economists think that they, you know, there's capital and labor, right? And they simplify it to the letters K and L and that somehow one can substitute for the other. But the problem is I really, you know, this is a point Anna and I have made repeatedly in seminar. Actually, they don't substitute for one another. We leverage one with the other. I make my labor more productive with the addition of capital. I might make my capital more productive with the use of skilled labor. And the military is no different. Our problem is that, I mean, right now is that we seem to think that, I mean, Jim and I were talking about this beforehand, uh, to compete in the gray zone using autonomous vehicles. Well, they're not autonomous, right? There are people involved, if only for the, uh, the most important thing people do, which is maintenance. That is keeping systems going and moving and the like. And I, I just think that we, we love technology. I love my iPhone, okay? I love the computer. I'm, you know, I don't love it. It's, I tolerate it. Uh, <laughs> sorry, computer. Um, but think about it. it the, you know, the whole notion of the offset strategy is a profound misreading, actually, of what happens during the Cold War. Because even by the end of the Cold War, we're not the nation that entered the Cold War, right? I can't make those systems anymore. Um, and by the way, we stopped making nuclear weapons. Uh, once we stopped testing them, we don't really make them anymore. Uh, we engage in a very sophisticated uh, sort of kabuki play where we uh, simulate their manufacture. We simulate their testing on our digital platforms in this program called Stockpiled Stewardship. But, you know, we... If you're going to go to war, you must prepare for it seriously. And by the way, preparing for war is, a, is in some ways, at least in the United States, a good thing for your economy because we only like to spend money on national security type things. But guess what? What is the most important investment I can make? It's not in a factory. 
It's not in a bomb. It's in a skilled workforce that can do all these things. I need an educated population. And like I, you know, said, my brother also just finished paying for his daughter's college education. So he too is in the college dividend, I guess, program. <laughs> but no, think about it. It is skilled workers, skilled managers, people with experience, not just in business, but in a host of things. I mean, I need people who can sell American ideas. By the way, look, this is a war in which we are fighting against autocracies, okay? We take on some elements of them in order to successfully fight this war, but we do not become an autocracy. And when Anand and I teach at Brown, you know, students always think autocracies have advantages. No, they don't. As long as we're willing to embrace our democratic or whatever style of government you think we have, uh, embrace it and tolerate the fact that guess what? It's got a lot of friction. It's got a lot of mess. It's rife for corruption, which is why you really need a lot of lawyers. Um, we live in Rhode Island. We know that better than most. And But you have to be willing to accept those defects in order to get the benefits that we have seen. I must admit, when I look around now, I am, I am concerned. And the very fact that we don't take some of these issues seriously, not everyone should be in war production. I am not saying that. But I got to be honest, I am a little worried that most of my PhDs and master's students in the sciences and in the STEM fields, and even in some of the social sciences are foreign students and not Americans. Yeah. I, and, you know, the one of our advantages in this war is that we had the most, the greatest percentage of our population had gone to high school. It was a, you know, Claudia Golden and Larry Kazan have written about this. This was actually an, an incredible advantage we had over every other nation on the globe. And our failure to really in, uh, make our secondary school system work such that, you know, my grandfather just graduated from high school and became a very successful industrialist in his time. Guess what? I'm not sure that's as possible now as it was then. So that's, these are points that are more, as I said earlier, at the senior level, uh, or the JPME2, forgive me, I know senior and junior is frowned upon now as phrasing, but uh, those are really important points that uh, figure in our, what will be our period of relative hegemony. Yeah, interesting threads to pull either, either way, whatever level, of course. Uh, Nick, why don't we go for you to this one? Uh, well, now, the, when you look at this war, I mean, it gives us a lot of advantages, and but it was it was something that could have easily, well, not easily, but with every war, there are there are risks, and you can make the wrong decision. Uh, you know, World War One is a, a perfect war where I mean, you can look at situations where if the Germans just make the opposite decision they win the war and there are like four or five opportunities. You don't see that as much in World War II, although there's certainly things that could have gone a different way, but it doesn't come down to one decision. There are large forces at work that um, 
allow the United States to win this conflict and uh, Japan to lose it. And if things, if ja the Japanese have made certain decisions and everything had broken right, um, like I said earlier, yeah, maybe they win. You know, it's kind of like the Punic, you know, the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. You know, the first, the first war goes to, you know, the Japanese, but there's probably going to be a second and third. Um, you have to look at how things are different uh, between then and now. And there are certain things that are better. For example, uh, Mike talked a lot about how we are reluctant to turn to women and minorities uh, in skilled labor. I suspect that's less the case today, that uh, if yeah. we were in that situation, that we'd be far more willing to um, turn to uh, women and uh, minorities to do this. So in some sense, we have we have more resources and there are more Americans. There are a lot more Americans than there were in World War II. The, the question is, is, you know, I uh, mentioned is, you know, you don't have as many young Americans. Uh, and oh, by the way, those young Americans have been eating high fructose corn syrup for a long time. So they're not in great shape. Now that can be adjusted. You know, boot camp might need to be, you know, six months instead of 30 days um, or excuse me, 90 days. Um, or, you know, whatever it is, uh, or maybe you need to spend, you know, the first six months on active duty, you know, getting in shape. Um, that's not ideal, but there, there are situations that you can respond to. Um, and everyone's going to have strengths and weaknesses. I mean, uh, and then the question really is, you know, how do we project our strengths, guard against our weaknesses and put our strengths against the other guy's weakness. And that really depends on who we're fighting, you know, and, um, the odds are it's probably no one that we're thinking about. So uh, those are my kind of general observations. Interesting. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Jim. Hey, I forgot what the question was, but I think it re referred to the impact of technology. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to, I was just going to offer a Clausewitzian point. And I, and I think I agree with this. Uh, I mean, Clausewitz, and I think he's talking about relatively symmetrical forces that are roughly, that are roughly equal in numbers as well. I mean, and I think he was he was making a point that really resonates when you look at the First World War. But he basically says when one side when one side does a technological innovation, the other side tends to copy it, and ultimately ultimately they balance out. So that so that mass is going to be the deciding deciding factor. I, I wouldn't make that a blanket rule by by any stretch, however. I mean, just look at the daily headlines. We we've we've seen that Ukraine, the army of Ukraine, has managed to use technology. Uh, as its great equalizer against a much stronger foe by demographic and economic and uh, and, and, and purely military terms, so it, it can be done. A lot of it, a lot of it depends on how you use technology. The, the Ukrainians have have uh, proved uh, to to all to all appearances they've they've become very adept at small unit operations. They've devolved uh, authority over small units down to the small units themselves, rather than centralizing authority as as the Russians have done. So they've. So, so, so there are aspects of how 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 Ukraine, how a combatant does things, how the adversary does things with technology, uh, and so forth. I guess the other the other point I would uh, I would bring that I would bring up is simply that you you if you're pitted against a relatively comparable uh, adversary, chances are that adversary is going to have certain niche advantages, and you're going to have some as well. We see that in the early going in the in, in the Pacific War when Japan's Japan is expert at uh, uh, at night fighting at sea, whereas the United States tends to rule the the sea and the air during the daytime. 
which I mean, Samuel Elliott Morrison and in his old in his old uh, book, wonderful books, by the way, uh, his uh, history of the U.S. naval operations in World War II. The book on Guadalcanal, he points out that it is a curious situation in which command of the sea passes passes to Japan at nightfall and it passes back to the United States Navy and Marine Corps at daybreak. Simply because we have those uh, those sorts of those sorts of uh, uh, advantages that are asymmetric. Now, I mean, I mean, there are obviously there are cases if, if you're if you are technologically superior against a dramatically outmatched foe like Saddam Hussein's Iraq in two, in 1991 or 2003. I mean, we have, we we actually make do with uh, pretty pretty slender numbers simply because simply because we have that. Uh, because they have that technological advantage in, inherent in the in, inherent in the offset strategies of the 1980s and the, in the late 1970s, I will say I'm not I'm not a bit. But however, I mean I'm just I guess I'm sort of like my, Michael Dennis is in, he's infecting me. I'm very I'm very skeptical about technological panaceas. Keep in mind the 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 offset strategies during the Cold War were never put to the test. We have to be careful about how we look back at the Cold War. We tend to take, especially especially after 30 years, we tend to take a victory lap. There's sort of a triumphal afterglow that surrounds us, that surrounds mem memories of the Cold War, as though, as, though, as though we just went out and thrashed the Soviet Union. We never did that. We, 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 let, we mocked the Soviet Navy, but we, we, we also never fought that Navy. And, and who knows what who knows what would have happened? I guess we probably would have won, but they would have they would have done some serious damage. And I think our memories of the Cold War would be quite different had it, had that happened. So, I guess it's all contextual. Depends on the context. Interesting point, Did, uh, Nick. You had a follow up on this one. Yeah, I guess I didn't really answer the original question, so I'll be very very short. We uh, fought the Germans, and we can see uh, in Germany and Japan the su substituting uh, technical proficiency for solving uh, strategic problems. Oh, we'll just, you know, blow them up more. Um, you can make an argument uh, that that's what we do in Vietnam, that we substitute firepower for, you know, in having a coherent plan and all this sort of stuff. I would suspect that uh, simply thinking tech will take care of it is not a very good idea. So I'll just leave it at that. But you're probably gonna have to have uh, a good strategy and, you know, numbers are gonna, uh, numbers are important um, period. And technology can certainly help you, but uh, ultimately at the end of the day, you, people matter. Uh, that's what the war is about. Technology can help you make, do more stuff, but, you know, still going to be a function of um, things like political will. Um, the human body needs eight hours of sleep, et cetera, et cetera. So there's only so far technology can take you. Interesting stuff. Okay, so as a final closeout question, as we draw to the end here, and we already talked about some of the contemporary relevance of this stuff, but any key takeaways, uh, things we need to do today, Michael, you already mentioned the industrial, the industrial base of the nation as a, as a concern, but any other final, final thoughts of, uh, you know, what is it, what does this conflict teach us uh, for potential conflicts today uh, in the contemporary environment? And uh, Michael, why don't we start with you? Fighting far from home is really hard and you should factor that in. But the most important, I think, just to go back to the antecedent conversation, technology is not a strategy. Um, and it's coming from the science and technology. Uh, well, no, but I'm a historian <laughs> of science and technology and science doesn't develop, you know, it's not like there's, I mean, for example, our current, look, the most important lesson our students need to know is this. Everyone talks about, oh, Putin's going to use a tactical nuclear weapon in the Ukraine to make his point. 
And I would just tell you, our military professor, I want to say Dan, but I'm probably getting his name wrong, um, at, is working on his dissertation or finishing his dissertation. And one of the facts he has shared with me and which is now in the public domain is simply this. And this gets to Jim's point earlier about uh, we never actually used any of that stuff in the Cold War. Never did any of it. And you want to know why? One reason is simply this. Every single war game the United States played with the Soviet Union in which a nuclear weapon was used, any kind, and the difference between tactical and strategic is linguistic. It is not, if you're underneath one, you're still going to be baked. Uh, forgive me, incinerated. Is this, all games ended with apocalypse. All games went to escalation. There was no, I mean, Herman Kahn posited, oh, there's this ladder. No, there's no ladder. It's a, it's like a sort of a slide, okay? You know, it's like the water slide at the water park. You get on it, you don't get off until you get to the bottom. And guess what? That bottom is awful. And, you know, we talk about the nuclear taboo and other things. Maybe this informed people's choices. But one thing I, you know, we are the only nation to have used a nuke and we used it against people who didn't have one. And we did it as part of an experiment. That was our, that was what the Manhattan Project was an experiment. And guess what? I'm glad we have it, no one. And we don't have little bombs like that anymore. And that's not a little bomb. I mean, Nick uh, said, I believe, in our um, faculty meeting about the PAC war case that, you know, the difference is, yes, I can do with a one bomber or a few bombers, because you have to have more than one, uh, what I did with 500. Okay, sure. Wow. I mean, that's actually using the language of economic efficiency. And, you know, Clausewitz is many things, but he is not an economist. And uh, I'm not sure how he would rationalize that level of death. But just keep that in mind. We have no games where we played them with nukes. Even, by the way, when we told the players they could not use nuclear weapons, they still did. And they did not go to the apocalypse. So, you know, technology isn't a strategy. If you've taken anything from this course, it is the primacy of politics, right? That's Carl's great insight. And that's actually the great insight of John Maynard Keynes. Politics comes first, then your economy. You got to make your choices and you got to, you know, you got to place your bets. And by the way, I would just say one thing we haven't even talked about, nor will we, hedging. If I'm going to, if I'm concerned about China, I'm going to hedge. I'm going to build my alliances. I'm going to build my industrial base. I'm going to, I'm going to work at making myself better because it is only when we, in fact, are, we as a nation are stronger and our allies are stronger that we can deal with a rival. And you know, let's face it, one advantage, you know, the most destructive force in the Westpac was the tsunami that crapped, you know, crashed our ships after the war ends. Well, guess what? More tsunamis now, more super typhoons, and climate change is here, and it is an enemy that we can all have to, we will all have to deal with. And, you know, in this sense, I don't want to fight China. I want to use China. I want to use them to help me survive, my nation and their nation survive what is to come. 
Interesting Sorry. part. Thank you, Michael. Uh, Nick, we'll go to you for last thought. Okay, the question is, what are the key takeaways? Mm -hmm. Well, I think oh, he's not popular with people these days, but uh, Rumsfeld made a pretty good point. You go to war with uh, the the army you have. Well, in this case, you know, you go to war with the army, the Navy, et cetera, that you have. You certainly can build that up. And in fact, you need that time. Uh, the United States uses the the two years that it's not involved in the world war well, but even then it still needs to build. Um, so uh, the Navy that defeats Japan and that Navy that exists in 1945, people have made a commitment to build that, um, you know, much earlier in 1940. Uh, but, you know, you've built the software, which is to say the, the officers, you built that in the thirties, you built the doctrine. So um, a lot of times decisions that happen in times of peace or before the war matter. And one of the important things that happens uh, for the United States, both in the Army and in the Navy, is you have to go to professional military schools to get promoted. And in some cases, that's all you're doing. And if you look at Dwight Eisenhower's career, it's almost like you can see someone has grabbed you know, him and said, you're going to be a theater commander and later president, because he's doing all these schools that are training him to do that job. And it's just like, wow, when you look at it that way. Um, so people went to, to school and they thought about this conflict. They developed strategy. Uh, and those are the two things that I think that you really take away is you don't go to war and then figure things out. Uh, you have to have ideas. Uh, ultimately, what are the policy objectives? Who do you want to be running this conflict? How do you want to be fighting it? And if you make the wrong call, uh, the results can be catastrophic. You can make an argument that Greece still has not recovered from the Peloponnesian War. Um, in that sense, it becomes, you know, comes occupied by Macedonia, then, you know, uh, Rome, and then the Ottoman Empire getting its independence only relatively recently, uh, which is, say, in the 19th century. So you make the wrong call, that can be catastrophic. So right now, what you need to do is have people thinking about the solution or thinking about the issues at hand. And we've spent a, a lot of time talking about ideas and, um, you know, I suspect that I will not be at the White House anytime soon as a policymaker, but uh, maybe one of my students will. So anyway, in fact, the odds are far better that my students will be at the White House as a policymaker. <laughs> Thanks, Nick. Jim, we'll end with you. I guess just uh, two, two quick points. I mean, for the, the obvious point, and, and I would say this also, the Russo-Japanese War, it's another case of access and area denial, as we call it, in the, or in the defense circles these days, where, you're, where a lesser power is scoring off against a much stronger power that has to come across thousands of miles of water and, and, and sky and so forth in order to try to win a fight in your own backyard. So, so, that, so, that, so that makes it part of our data bank for, for thinking about today. What did Japan, I mean, if you look at what's, and I'm not going to make this about China too much because we'll cover that in the last week, but in, but in a sense, China has it easy because it has very long range precision weaponry. It doesn't even need to, to have all those uh, German mandated islands that uh, Japan gets after war, after World War One fortifies with planes and, and submarines and so forth with the idea of cutting the Pacific fleet down to size on its western voyage uh, to, to rescue the Philippine Islands at the outset of a conflict. Okay, so that's, a, that's point one. Here's another A2AD uh, point. The second, the, the second point I would uh, I would make is not that communist China today is imperial Jap Japan in the 1930s or 40s. 
but I think but I think that but I think there's uh, there are some similarities. China, Beijing today seems it seems content with a long drawn out uh, strategic competition in the South China Sea against vastly out, outmatched uh, opponents to try to stake its claims to sovereignty over the South China Sea over the vast majority of the South China Sea. But I think I think it, it is like Imperial Japan. If there's a hot war, especially in the Taiwan Strait, but also over the Senkaku Islands in the East China Sea, it very much it's very much an Imperial Japanese mode. It wants that quick encounter, quick showdown, win the war in the afternoon, so that it, so that it basically it, uh, isolates its opponent in Taiwan or, or in Japan, so that nobody can come to the rescue to the rescue of those powers. And in that sense, in that sense, I think that's a dangerous way of thinking because, in my view. Uh, the United States and its allies should try to protract the war and deny China that short war. But if but if China feels so strong and so confident in its in this in this shiny new military it's built over the last quarter century, it might it, it might roll the dice. Mm. Interesting, excellent discussion, gentlemen. Thank you very much for your time. It was fascinating, and we will see everybody next time on profiles and strategy. Thank you. Thank you.